0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. This season, and especially the year 1994, has been a lot about bringing back old IP and nostalgia. We've mostly found that these movies are made with love by people who had loved the original source material and have wanted to update it to not only connect with modern audiences, but also pay homage to the things that they really cared about, highlighting it in a way that they think works best. It could be argued that one of the greatest film homage artists of all time is George Lucas, who of course created films which would then inspire filmmakers to make their own love letters. If you look at George Lucas's career, there's a huge gap where he goes away from hands-on directorial filmmaker from Star Wars in 1977 to, well, The Phantom Menace in 1999. But his influence as an executive producer and story creator is all over the 80s and 90s, even in places you wouldn't expect it. And today we're going to look at two of those movies, Radioland Murders and The Shadow. But before we do that, Cam, Alicia, let's have a look at Lucas as executive producer and the quite fascinating reason why he wasn't directing the films he was helping to create. Who wants to start
2: on this one? Cam, I feel like you've always had a nice defense of Lucas (laughs) at this point, which I agree with. You love
0: Howard the Duck, Alicia. Do not stop.
2: Oh, Howard's coming up, Becky. I've got a whole paragraph written on Howard.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the interesting thing, the thing that I always point to that I don't know if we've talked about on the podcast or just on the series is that he was always considered of the like movie brats, the experimental Weirdo, interesting one. Like if you talk to, <laughs> especially Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. He says that he thought that that was going to be the guy who changed film, and of course the the monkey's paw irony is he absolutely did change film, but not in the way Francis Ford and, Coppola. And, and keeping
2: oh. mind, Coppola produced the feature version of his student film, THX 1138. Some people say 1138. I'm unclear which one it is, but uh, which is (laughs) 1971. It's an interesting
1: thing. And I think you see a lot of that in his early executive producing. Uh, A bunch of those guys, of course, came together for Kagamusha, the Kurosawa film, to help fund that. Uh, They came together for Mishima. Uh, the Paul Schrader film. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he's obsessed with Japanese film, uh, see Star <laughs> Wars, the Japanese movie adaptation that's not a Japanese movie adaptation. Uh, but he also has stuff like Body Heat, uh, you know, the Labyrinth that we talked about. Uh, he pr- produces for Coppola Captain EO, which is a whole other weird situation. Uh, but yeah, he, he's a guy, uh, the, the he produces one of the sequels to Koyaanis Uh So he has this interest in... I think, funding unique film uh, that wouldn't get funded. Uh, like, that's kind of weird when you're like Kurosawa. But if you think of Martin Scorsese, I think he has a lot of the same eventual Martin Scorsese's producing all these foreign films yeah. for foreign filmmakers who he really respects. And I think Lucas weirdly comes from the same place. He kind of loses touch with that. But the other thing that I would point to, I guess, before I toss over to Alicia and what she thinks, is that you always have to also consider the fact that George Lucas on top of funding all of these film projects, uh, is deeply invested in film technology, and both through Industrial Light and Magic, the the special effects house, which we'll get into, which is heavily involved in Radio mm-hmm. Land Murders, weirdly. Uh, he's pushing forward, and by 1994, they're, they are the absolute... The pinnacle of special effects and and also the fascinating thing is special effects makeup effects really developed from the 70s through the 80s and a lot of it is through george lucas people like rick baker came through star wars and all these guys who started their own houses came through ilm and came through star wars
2: as like apprentices basically like young in their early 20s cutting their teeth on (laughs) yeah and i think getting getting a check
1: big enough we talked about tak fujimoto tak fujimoto was doing b Mm -hmm. camera ships blowing up and that gave him enough money and enough clout to go do his own thing. And then the other weird one, which is not really movie-related... Oh, well, also THX, the sound system. He develops crazy cinema sound in theaters, which is... Uh, something else entirely. Uh, But then the other one I always want to point to, which is completely kind of off out of nowhere, but he was also innovating video games with LucasArts. LucasArts was a very Mm -hmm. forward-thinking video game company that absolutely changed, especially the way game narratives were thought of, um, which is kind of a fascinating whole other branch. But he just cared about stuff like that. Um, So, yeah, he he had his fingers in a lot of pies. Uh, We won't really get into it. He's also a fascinating guy who's, you know, very interested in charity work. Uh, he's very interested mm-hmm. in representation on film. I think with Radio Land Murders, you see a so so kind of nod to black people and the significance they had in the industry. Uh, but for something later like Red Tails, he was very obsessed with making an all black cast movie and he knew that he had to fund it himself because Hollywood studios were just not interested in an all black film in 2012 yeah. or something. So They uh, weren't yeah. in fashion. He's not. Pam,
0: it wasn't in fashion. No. no.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, his argument was it never has been and they're stupid. And unfortunately, <laughs> Red Tails didn't do much and it took black panther later to really get that done but uh he's an interesting guy with ideas like that
0: well there's another reason why george lucas moved away from hands-on filmmaking and uh alicia knows a bit about that yeah
2: well i think you know i mean this is kind of a, a personal element of george lucas's life but it's also important to point out like part of the reason he takes a step back from directing is he's a very active family man which um, if we know Hollywood history, most men do not take Mm -hmm. that path. And so he was very active in raising, I think, both his um, I think he has some adopted children and biological children, but a pretty large family. And that was something that was important to him. And he certainly had the resources and the finances uh, and the clout to do that and knew he could kind of come back. You know, what 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 is the gap with him directly? 20 years. Yeah, it's 99 or 77 to 99. Because, yeah. So, Phantom Menace, yeah,
1: yeah and that we makes talked, and we will talk about on the series that he decided that his skills were better as a producer, even for Star Wars, and that's why he brought on Irvin Kershner because he's like, I can't direct as as on the fly by the seat of my pants as this, and I know that Irvin Kershner can, and that's part of why uh, Empire Strikes Back is his best movie because he brought on yeah. his his mentor, who is a great improvisational film director, and he just knew he didn't have those skills.
2: Who we talked about in the very first episode oh. of this podcast in season one. Irving Kirshner directed Eyes of Lauren yeah. Mars, which is what got Lucas to hire him for mm-hmm. Do you think one of
0: the reasons that he likes working with Spielberg so much as, as we've discovered Spielberg is that kind of like maniac off the cuff director? So like he can bring yeah. that influence into it. I mean, they both obviously we're going to talk about in a minute how they they love serials. They love all that kind of stuff, which is why you have Indiana Jones.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that they both just have that that kind of loose 70s feel where they like improv and they like doing whatever i I think a few of the problems we'll talk about with the film today are that where he's maybe a little too rigid and not not really rolling with the punches anymore and and too stuck in the uh, the past Uh, and weirdly not the past of radio but the past of 1970 whatever when this script was written
2: Yeah. And for Star Wars, it works because Star Wars, of course, is very Buck Rogers, Mm -hmm. very space serials of the 1930s, including radio um, and early kind of um, serialized short films that you would see in a theater in the 1940s. But Star Wars is just that much removed where it works, whereas the film we're about to talk about is probably too close to trying to be essentially a remake of its source material, which is uh, frankly too old in the 1990s going back to the 40s doesn't make sense at that early point. Early
0: in his career, like pre-Star Wars early, is when he wrote the story for the movie that paid homage to two genres that he loved, the screwball comedy and the whodunit. Uh, and if you have a listen to the first episode of the season about uh, Peter Bogdanovich's At Long Last Love, you're going to know that in the 70s it would have fit in to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, the movie was shelved and we'll get into why later and it didn't re-emerge until 1994, weirdly in part because of the advancements made in CGI. And I think this movie had a ton of potential. It still does. And I remember really loving it when it first came out as a kid. But I was a very high energy child. So I was probably able to keep up with it at that point. And uh, at the time, it was critically panned and was a major, major box office flop.
2: I think it's still like statistically or if you look at the data, one of the largest losses. Yeah. Yeah. And the biggest drop off from first week box office to second week box office in film history is probably in the top 10 in terms of mm-hmm. worst received, worst, uh, which obviously we chose to talk about on this podcast. And so we've found some redeemable qualities <laughs> about this film. But it is really important to note that this was the bomb of 1994. Which uh, I think it does have a lot of redeeming elements. Like
0: I think there's a, an amazing supported cast, like amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think like uh, Bobcat Goldthwait, Stephen Tobolowski, Michael McKean and Christopher Lloyd, just to name a few are like mm-hmm. the mvps of
2: this movie and what they're doing candy clark i, I the whole film as a like, candy clark's in this candy clark from man who filled earth didn't recognize her. She's throughout the film. Had to figure it out later. Like, oh, she's the woman in the audience without any dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Great. yeah. It's uh, it's frenzied. Frenzied is going yes. to be the word I use Kin- for this. Yeah, kinetic frenzied. Yeah, yeah that's
0: definitely. Good. There's. Have we said that the film is radial? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's
1: written on the <laughs> podcast. It's, it's you oh up. yeah. Okay.
0: Um, and I mean, this review from the L.A. Times is brutal. It says it never lets up and never shuts up. It's wearying, kind of like staring at a gasping hamster on an exercise wheel for. For two hours which <sighs> i think is cruel <laughs> i do yeah. not think that is
2: correct um there are moments in the film where the hamster steps off and i genuinely laughed and i genuinely saw kind of the tunnel vision that you know george lucas and the director he chose for this film mel stewart sorry mel smith you know what yes, it's mel written
1: smith. somewhere as mel stewart because i fell for the same trap
2: yeah i wrote down mel stewart that's weird his previous work was the Tall Guy, which was an early Jeff Goldblum it's good. film.
1: It's a delightful film.
2: Yeah, I I would love to see that. But um, yeah, I I don't. We should yes. probably talk. About That's the plot right, Cam. First. Cam, lead us through the plot, please, um, just quickly. Well,
1: it's, it's quickly, uh, faster, faster. Uh, no, it's a it's a fairly classic uh, sort of setup of a screwball comedy. There is a husband and wife uh, on the verge of divorce. Uh, Roger and Penny, played by. Mary Stuart Masterson, who people know, and Brian Benben, who people may not know because he has nope. he has not been famous for a long time.
2: <laughs> I thought it was uh, a typo. Get, I will get
1: into Brian Benben <laughs> and why he was a big deal at the time. Uh, but yes, anyway, they're uh, they're bickering. Uh, Penny is the producer of a radio show, uh, and Roger is, is the head writer of this kind of full radio channel that has all the radio shows you would ever want, and it's the launch of a new radio station. Uh, it's the launch day with a live audience, and they're performing everything live in front of everybody. And uh, during this performance, this inaugural day, there are a series of murders and a mysterious voice which breaks in and accuses people of things.
0: Which suspiciously sounds a lot like the shadow. Yes, like, it's, true. it's definitely uh, that growl.
1: Hardly time to say a prayer before we move on to the. What? End. And fairly quickly, uh, the the police come, led by Michael Lerner, and they suspect Roger, so it's up to Roger, uh, who is the Patsy Fall guy, to try to be one step ahead of the police and solve this murder before he's in trouble. And Penny always believes it's not him. So she's helping out too. Um, so yeah, it's, it's rat-a-tat dialogue and, and throughout it all, we're seeing all these different radio shows, which, uh, none of which are really real, but most are spoofs of, uh, existing radio programs you'll recognize fake versions of the shadow
2: or you have mm-hmm. george burns yeah. actually coming out in his last on-screen role and doing a comedy bit that he would have performed on radio it, it's literally 1950s, one from the radio if It's not it's, earlier uh, they
1: just did it yeah. and same there's a interestingly rosemary clooney also appears in her final film performance yeah. singing billy Barty in his yeah. final last great film yeah. performance he does the exact thing he did with spike jones uh, he performs the same song the same way I suggest looking up uh, you can look up Billy Barty and Spike Jones in the 50s performing the song and it's kind of fascinating.
2: We have talked about Billy Barty so <laughs> yeah, many times. Billy Barty had podcast. quite a career because this is kind of amazing. this is
1: Billy Barty actually yeah. I'm sure he did it with Spike Jones I- in the radio days but Billy Barty was doing this in the 1950s with Spike Jones on television. So and it's also kind of fascinating because Billy Barty is doing impressions of singers and like good luck to yeah. you identifying all the different singers <laughs> he's pretending to be. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's fascinating because you're like, "Oh, billy barty was an impressionist like uh, i didn't know that mm-hmm. he was a vaudeville fake baby he was an impressionist he was a silent film star uh yeah
2: yeah i mean for people who don't remember who billy because i so they don't have to look it up on their phone if you listen to our episode on legend he's um, a little person performer actor who was in mm. so many things like the he-man movie and, like, and our the our childhood we talked billy about billy barty as yeah. well yeah 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 so, um, I do want to point, to point to the fact that, like, a lot of people watching this,
0: as you mentioned, in the 90s would have no idea what these mm. references are, especially for like the modern audience to be going to see it. And one of the reviews I saw, they were like, Why the hell are there dancers at a radio show? And I'm like, That's the joke.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it's don't... like an Hyster and Rogers sort of yeah. clone. Yeah. There's a lot of clones in this film where you have people who are meant to look like the Andrews sisters. You have someone who's, I think, supposed to be yes, Cab Calloway. So. Someone who's supposed to be Spike Jones. And then you have a and Rogers, like, dancing duo which it's you know there's a large audience watching this radio production but you're right they missed the joke and I think the reason for that is there are too many jokes in this film it is Mm. exhausting the slapstick is beginning to end Um, there's a Roger Ebert review that I'm just going to read a few um, lines from and I think he I think he really wanted to love this film and I do think he's someone who's actually quite closely related to George Lucas at this point in his life Um, but he wrote But the movie just doesn't work. It's all action and no character, all situation and no comedy. The slapstick starts so soon and lasts so long that we don't have an opportunity to meet or care about the characters in a way that would make their actions funny. It's all just movement. And it's true. This film, the the slapstick is does a discredit to it, because when you have a film like let's say you have one of the Abbott and Costellos that's similar to this, like uh Who Done It, which I know was a huge inspiration for Radio Land Murders. We know, or I mean, we're not <laughs> us because we are the wrong age group, but the main demographic at the time for Abbott and Costello knew Abbott and Costello. They had seen 20, 30 films with Abbott. Like you didn't have you could put them in any situation because you knew the characters, and that's what made made the slapstick work. Here, there were some moments where I was like, wait, who got murdered? And it took like 30 minutes for me to realize Jeffrey is yeah. not on screen anymore, so it was probably him. Because I was like, I can't keep track of all of these, like, 90s mm-hmm. sitcom actors that I barely recognize and can name, and I can't tell what is happening. And then the slapstick, it's like intense too intense and there's moments too where like there's screwball elements
0: of the dialogue like they make one of those now no now no jokes mm-hmm. which like they're it's yes. jeffrey tambor and i do not remember the other actors but he's very famous as well um and the, exactly yeah, yeah. exactly and they're <laughs> too and they're, they're doing this bit of dialogue i'm gonna play the clip right now oh mr katzenbach ruffles
2: said he'd like to speak to you right away said you'd know what it was about I Ruffles, trumpet player. Oh,
1: please, that horn blowing. Now you
2: listen to me, Junior. Don't you think that I don't know what's going on? Because I do know. And now you know that I know. Listen, I don't
0: know what you know that I know. But I do know that you don't know what you think you know. Oh, no! No. And the problem I have with it is that they're missing the timing. Like, and I don't know if it's a director Mm -hmm. thing or if it's the fact that, like, they just had to learn it so fast. And I can't help but think about Down With Love, which is a movie I need to revisit because I remember really (laughs) Mm -hmm. liking it, but I do not remember if it holds up. Uh, Oh, Cam's not shaking his head. But I know (laughs) it has
1: its fans. It has its fans, so... It
0: does, it does. But I know they do that bit, uh, because the magazine is called No, and they're like, well, how are things now at No? Do you know how Mm -hmm. things are now at No? Like, they do the same bit, but I remember it being quicker and funnier because it just was clearer. I think that bit's
2: probably good. I think watching that... God, yeah, I loved that film when that came out, and, but it's And we're going to talk
0: about how that is actually done better. There's a moment of it, too, that's done better by Tim Curry mm, in sure. The Shadow, which I'm very excited to yeah. point to. Remember, remind me. Remind yeah. me. I'm going to bring it up. But I, I,
1: <laughs> like a, there's a few things to talk about here because, yeah, I agree that... The script doesn't work, the directing is a little weird, the casting is interesting but doesn't function, but I think the number one thing that really sinks this is what Alicia was talking about, which is the references, and what has happened is that the monoculture, kind of the, the popular culture, has moved Past it. This was a thing meant to appeal to baby boomers Mm -hmm. in the 1970s. But if you think of the other films, even the Flintstones, the Flintstones is referencing something that is 30 years after this.
2: Well, and they used the Flintstones Mm -hmm. to advertise this. This was Radio Land Murders. The trailer was directly put onto the Flintstones, Uh, thinking that it would appeal to the same boomer generation as the Flintstones. And and Flintstones clearly clearly
1: appears appeal to not boomers because you could watch it on TV. Uh, But also.
2: It appealed yeah. to us, and if we are boomers. About it, <laughs> like we were think about it, also I think
1: boomers are like even edging on barely being super nostalgic for radio because if you look, the other films that were big were like Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is actually about years after radio days. That uh, makes Pulp sense. Pulp Fiction to me. is about the seven. Like the, it's increasingly the seventies with like Brady Bunch, Pulp Fiction. But like Ed Wood is also way after the radio. You know, it's kind of like yeah. it's yeah. interesting that that is, and there's stuff even referencing like the the broadcast takes place in 1939, which is significant because 1939 is when the world's fair that introduced TV came. So there's all these jokes about like radio mm-hmm. will never die, but it's like ironically in the year where like radio was really about to die.
2: And the whole, we're not going to spoil the plot because it is kind of an sure. interesting whodunit. And I will say very surprisingly, I felt the third act was the strongest yeah. Agreed. in the film. And I, I think it's because they pull back a little tiny bit yes. from the slapstick and the whodunit. Um, who done it plot is actually really effective and it does involve, I think very cleverly the Mm. invention of television. Like I really think that this is the ultimate like radio killed the video, (laughs) radio (laughs) radio killed killed the the radio star. Yeah. Which (laughs) is also related to the shadow. It all (laughs) comes back. It all all comes back. And yeah, I would actually, what's what I found so interesting is, you know, I made my partner, Brendan watch this and at about, you know, maybe like the 40 minute mark, I was like, look, I'm giving you an out. If you want to turn this off, I will wake up (laughs) at seven in the morning and finish this because I have to for this podcast. But like, I don't want to subject you to this. He wanted to stick it through because he said he's been just watching way too many good movies lately. And it's good to remind (laughs) yourself. What else is out there? (laughs) The diaspora (laughs) film. But I'm glad he was glad we stuck with it because like there's something there to recommend in that third act.
0: For me, it's the talking about all the gags, like the constant gags. For me, it's uh, I think I mentioned it earlier, the character actors when they hit the Mm. jokes, Boy, do they hit the jokes. Bobcat Goldswaite has a joke in there where it's like, the
1: actors are improvising? Yeah, yeah, for your ah!
2: Ah! And then he starts screaming in a way Bobcat Goldswaite only can, and I laughed really Which hard. I think he was not allowed to mm. up until that point because his introduction on screen, I'm like, oh my God, is that Bobcat? And then he's not Bobcat yeah. for like an hour, and then he's... Full Bobcat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's,
1: it's interesting. <laughs> it's I, and I mean, so what, what we should go into is that this was, you know, this was a script from the 70s that was meant yeah. to kind of happen a few times and didn't happen. Happen.
2: It, it was an idea that he wrote while filming mm-hmm. American Graffiti. So we're looking at 72, 73 is when it comes out, American Graffiti. He's probably writing this in 72. And so that means it's in development hell for over oh, 20 yeah. years.
1: And so it starts with uh, Hayek and Katz, his go-to writers that you probably know from Howard, Howard the Duck, Duck uh, who I always point people to their great film Messiah of Evil, which is like proves that they are not hacks. <laughs> and George Lucas, much like uh, Coppola thought that Lucas was the great thing uh, Lucas thought that Hayek and Katz were the most talented writers in his graduating class I,
2: I do think they um, are yeah I mean,
1: I love and them. I wonder if a lot of what we talk about the great structure the great mystery is them to be honest I think it so. went through a million yeah. revisions and it sounds like a lot of the revisions were trying to update and change the uh, radio stuff like the radio spoofs uh, yeah. to th-
2: like getting rid of like what essentially lucas wants yeah to do getting rid film. of
1: and it also sounds interesting where it's hard to tell because it sounds like he threw out a lot of the uh revisions so it's, it's hard to know what comes and doesn't come but the interesting thing is this was set up in 1978 uh for steve martin cindy williams uh from uh mm-hmm. happy days as uh, they would be the leads and you're kind of like okay i could kind of see that but the thing is star wars was just so huge that star wars ate and took over everything. I wonder again if it's Batman too, you know? Where Batman, Mm -hmm. part of the thing is Batman brought in this old IP again and then part of the thing is that Lucas realized by utilizing computer generated imagery to create a lot of the sets, which would be very costly. He could get this down to about $10 million. And the other deal and, he yeah. made is that almost all of the cast is from television. Mary Stuart yeah. Masterson is about the yeah. only actor. Cause even somebody like Jeffrey Tambor at the time was mostly from Larry Sanders, Larry Sanders. Yeah. Yeah.
2: and Corbin, Corbin Benson's Bernstein, on yeah, this from yeah. LA law, which we, which, was it Corbin? Bernstein, Bernstein? Yeah. Yeah. From LA law which would have been a huge show in in 93 mm-hmm. 94 um yeah it's interesting it, it is budgeted at 10 million because of what ILM can do and then somehow it skyrockets to 15 million which doesn't sound like that much but that is yeah. a huge increase and especially in budget and then with
1: how they like scuttled its release immediately that five yeah. million would have made a huge difference probably it
2: it only made 1.37 million dollars. At the box office opening in almost a thousand theaters, wow. which I, at first I thought, oh, it must be a limited mm-hmm. opening situation. Uh uh-uh. uh. This was in every multiplex yeah. in North America and made one. 0.37 million and then dropped 78% yeah. in its second. Yeah. That's painful.
1: And this is also the era where of course if it starts dropping a theater just cuts it out, right? Like after a week Absolutely. it's gone. So this is where Flintstones
2: is back yes, in exactly. theaters. <laughs> this is
1: where I think they made the fatal mistake where kind of all these fatal mistakes pile up. Uh Mel Smith, a very interesting director. Like I say tall man great he he is a british comedian he's from not the nine o'clock news he's a sketch guy he really gets he really gets it so that's partially why you're kind of fascinated why this didn't work and you're like how much was lucas he hates lucas you can tell he maybe made made up a weird story (laughs) about lucas (laughs) trying to make a film of (laughs) all cgi actors
0: yeah, so he claimed that he was buying up all of these rights to uh, dead people's likenesses, dead visages. And then he said that they would be putting together a movie where, like, Orson Welles would be hanging out with, like, Gina Davis and Madonna. Like, it's just Which wild. Which
1: fascinates me because...
2: There, there is a duck that's shot <laughs> in this film. It's a fake uh, duck. It is essentially Okay,
1: Howard. well...
2: <laughs> if you zo- zoom in on that shot, it's a very small joke, and there's too many jokes in this to even, like, notice it. But as someone who was very cognizant of Howard the Duck, I was <laughs> okay. like, they just shot Howard the Duck. I mean, that's probably just something
1: from the radio I don't don't know or remember.
2: No, but I think it's a, it's a, a, the it's shooting, a smear yeah. campaign on Howard
0: <laughs> the, the Duck. shooting, that whole element with uh, the check jacket that Michael McKean is wearing and doing like all this stuff. That's a Spike Jones routine. Yeah.
1: But uh, anyway, sense. the Mel Smith is kind of interesting, but he worked on Dream On, which is the show that made Brian Ben-Ben famous. Dream On Oh. interestingly I wonder if it's also a meta casting commentary because dream on is all about a guy who is so obsessed with television and movies that it infects his life that show you and I probably don't know it. we were too young for it also if you lived in Canada it's an HBO show that we did not get uh, but it's a show that just it doesn't exist anymore partially because it was full of these licensed clips of movies mm. and television it's, um, the Muppet babies uh, it's absolutely the Muppet Babies. It's 100% Muppet Babies starring Brian Ben Ben. <laughs> also, it had boobs in it. So people mm. loved a sitcom with boobs. Um, but it was on for years. And Brian Ben Ben was kind of a deal. Like there's a Brian Ben Ben sitcom that he had. But I think he's just a very TV guy. I don't think he's doing a bad job. But I think if you think if if it was Michael J. Fox or Michael Keaton, you would get more than $1.3 million dollars at the box. God, office.
2: Michael Keaton would have been so yeah, good. Yeah, and I, I, I don't
1: even think Brian Ben-Ben is bad. He just doesn't have a draw. No. He just doesn't no. have the, and like if you compare, like Mary Stewart Masterson was pretty big at the time, um, and she does a good, yeah, good. I think both of them are equally good but it's just like Brian Ben-Ben is not a celebrity who has a draw. And I, so I think that Mel Smith brought him, the interesting thing that like with the slapstick not working and the jokes all the time not working, one of his movies that's kind of buried that people also really love is this movie called Brain Donors, which is essentially a Marx Brothers script starring John Turturro. Um, mm, and right. people, a certain comedy fan loves it because it's like a Marx Brothers movie that never got made. And it's essentially people just doing Marx Brothers shtick. So the weird thing is he kind of has in his belt. And I mean, tall, tall guy features Rowan Atkinson doing a lot of kind of classic vaudeville style humor. Uh, so you know that he can kind of do it. So there's something falling apart between the script and the actor and Lucas. And, and I, you, you think with his... Bristling against Lucas, uh, yeah, it's weird. Uh, he he ended up directing the Mr. Bean movie, which some people have a great. Fondness I was just going to say. I was
2: just. I was like in my head, something just popped yes. in where this man goes on to make my favorite <laughs> film from childhood. <laughs> Bean. Well, he was. Yeah, he was
1: really big in uh, uh, Rowan Atkinson's career. I mean, that makes sense. I loved Bean.
2: And I think Sandra Oh had her first Hollywood role in Bean. Perhaps. Is it before or
1: after (laughs) Arliss? That's always the other question. It's before, Uh. I think. Uh,
2: Well, I
0: want to take us back to the CGI, because until it was, like, actually freeze-framed in certain elements, I couldn't tell it was CGI. But it is... Agree. really gorgeous yeah. like it's really so impressive and Lucas himself went on the um on the the promotional trail talking about the CGI because that was what I think if if anything this is not a failure in that he got the, it out there that you could start using CGI in this way incredibly inexpensively yeah. and that was kind of the point and my favorite is there's a a Bobby Wygant interview with him where she is just so uh, obsessed with the idea that now they can make lava look real and he's like actually I'm thinking about using it for like characters and we'll be able to have these incredible interactive characters and she's like but lava will look real right listen
1: (laughs) and I I think as much as uh, like we love Bobby Wiggett partially because her entire archives are (laughs) online (laughs) that's the real reason she's the fourth anchor of the show but uh (laughs) um she's not i wonder if she knew about uh, the upcoming competing volcano movies because those are coming up bobby probably had a tip she probably literally talked to somebody who talked about lava in volcano and dante's peak and and, which
2: is going to be on this podcast for sure (laughs) for season 1997 uh, she got
1: got shook by lucas but yeah i the interesting thing i think to point out and a special reason to watch this if you're a fan of lucas is this is really the prototype for the star wars prequels which famously were one of the first big movies with all computer generated sets so i I see
2: so much of the dna of jar jar binks (laughs) in radio land murders in terms of just the jokes that don't work and the completely being out of touch with what the current generation finds funny not that i think jar jar binks would have been laughed at in 1939 but (laughs) there is there is a bit of jar jar in radio land murders for sure. sure i can see that um Cam doesn't. Really <laughs> no, I,
1: mean, I get it. I also think that weirdly, I think Jar Jar might have been laughed at in 1939. <laughs> don't, Maybe don't count Jar Jar. Uh, he
0: wrote yeah. it for his. He wrote to the Phantom Menace for his kids, though, right? Like he he wrote it with them in mind. He definitely thought kids possibly, would love Jar
1: Jar. Is yeah. what you can you know for sure. He he was he wrong. thought Jar Jar would be the number one kid thing. Yeah, I don't know. Another thing I just wanted to point out, kind of among all these interesting actors and interesting cameos, is this is the last role of a, a very interesting. Actress Anita Morris, who mm-hmm. was a big Broadway star, who yeah. uh, did a lot of stuff with, uh, like Jesus Christ Superstar. She originated uh, a role in Nine. She was kind of a huge star. She plays the the sultry lady, who's this the sexy voice, who's sleeping with everybody. Uh, the
2: va 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 boom girl with the va 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 boom voice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She she passed away from ovarian cancer mm-hmm. just a few weeks after filming she was someone that had been diagnosed 14 years yeah. earlier and told that she wouldn't survive a year and her she actually started her career in film upon that diagnosis and i think if you would recognize her from another film it's a really excellent film on disney plus right now called i say disney plus because if it's disney we ain't getting it on hollywood suite um called uh, ruthless people ah, she's yes. like danny devito's mistress and that just like this burlesque Classic burlesque body, really, really good actress. I really yeah, love her. Yeah,
1: she, she's super cool, and and wasn't in a ton of films, so she's kind of one of those no. Broadway people. Uh, And fascinatingly, uh, she is the mother of actor James Badge Dale, which I think a lot of people may not know know because he was, you know, she died quite young. Uh, But yeah, she's uh, her and Grover Dale, who's a pretty famous uh, choreographer. You may know him as a former lover of Anthony Perkins. Uh, Yeah, they had uh, James Badge (laughs) Dale together. So it's like kind of a, a fascinating person to see in this role and I think she has a lot of fun with it and it's yeah it's great that she had this kind of She's cool perfect. final role Perfectly too cast.
0: Yeah, if we're doing this too yeah, I want to point green. people towards uh Stephen Tobolowski, who is yes. one of my personal favorite mm-hmm. and not just one of my personal favorite I'm sure like many people's favorite mm-hmm. character actors he's someone yeah, who has yeah. 277 IMDb he's kind of the MVP in he's so, yeah, so good he grounds uh-huh. it so well so and funny. he's the only one yeah. who is deadpanning his lines mm-hmm. he's the only one who's not yelling or screaming he's just like Slid in, slid in jokes. He looks in joke. like
2: a 1939
1: actor. Yeah, He's amazing. totally. I mean, and I'm fascinated. Let me say, the one thing I was shocked by, I literally wrote myself a note being like, look up Tobolowski talking about this movie. Because he loves talking about movies. He loves he loves weaving an anecdote. He used to have a podcast where it was just kind of like, ask him a question. But whoever interviews Stephen Tobolowski next, ask him about Radioland murders, because I can find nothing yeah. of wow. him talking about Radio Land murders. And he has a very significant role, and it's pretty early in his career, so...
2: Including like a, the, you know, the climax of the film, which we don't want to spoil, like this really special effects laden, mm. actually quite effective King Kong-esque, <laughs> you know, set piece that he's involved in is, he's great. He sells it mm-hmm. completely. Yeah. Yeah. It was
0: so much, I love him so much that we were originally going to name our dog Stephen Tobolowski, the dog, not the noted character actor.
1: Oh my God. <laughs>
2: I like ginger
0: ruffers. I'm glad you went
2: with ginger ruffers. Yeah, well,
0: we got a girl dog. That's it. We've been calling her the Duchess lately because, you know, there's some attitude Mm. going on there. Um, All right. I think that that sort of regality is going to take us into our next film. So when we come back, we're going to go into a movie that I absolutely love and I'm going to make a case for. It's The Shadow. And that's coming up after the break. Before Batman, before V for Vendetta, heck, even before Darkwing Duck, who knew what evil lurked in the hearts of men? The Shadow. Although, like the Flintstones, the Shadow had been bouncing around Hollywood since the early 80s, the 90s became the time for trying to revitalize the classic 30s and 40s comic book and radio drama characters. From the Phantom to the Rocketeer, movie after movie did their best to hit the Batman franchise jackpot they all failed. But for the life of me, I cannot figure out why the Alec Baldwin starring visual extravaganza that is The Shadow didn't take off, at least in some capacity. I mean, this is the closest we are ever going to get to see Alec Baldwin play Batman. Now, I have to admit, I am a little biased. I love classic radio dramas. I love The Shadow and Margot Lane as characters, and I am going to do my best not to make this. Here is why 1994's The Shadow requires a full and complete reevaluation as an awesome blockbuster movie, a lecture. Which was a
2: B cut that got cut out of the show for <laughs> you for right. like seven minutes without any cut. That's what I was going to say. Just on camera was <laughs> so fast talking would, <laughs> the shadow. And we wanted to keep it, yet it didn't make it because no one else would agree with you. <laughs> and uh, and I, here we are in the And podcast. I feel like after, and you put this in for the podcast for me just so I could have this. Oh, but yeah. I feel like
0: at the end of my rant that I did, which I'm very proud of, um, you, Alicia, were like, huh, maybe I need to go rewatch it. Now, have I swung you around at all to this is not a complete disaster? No.
2: Well, no, there's things I really appreciate about this, but I do remember you being so persuasive because I did watch it for the show that we filmed and was going to talk about it, but was having a hard time sort of how to characterize it without saying like, man is this bad but um <laughs> you persuaded me and then so I was like put in the podcast and I was really excited to come back to this and I'm still excited to talk about it. I think it's a fascinating film to talk yeah. about but in terms of is this a masterpiece which I'm not I'm, I don't think is what that's not what no. you're saying. And let's keep in mind for listeners. I think every listener can relate like there's films we grew up with that we are so fond of. And sure, in our adulthood, they don't live up, but it's different for an adult coming to it fresh. We don't see it through the eyes of that you know nostalgia in childhood. So you and I are a little bit of opposing sides. And I think Cam is the the, the middle sure. ground. I'll accept. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, on later understanding, I now know
0: why this did not at least garner a bigger box office. And it didn't fail. Like, Mm. it actually did okay. It made its money back and more. Um, It just didn't get a, it wasn't, like, get a sequel good. To give an Um, example
2: for, like, how this was, you know, the reason why it might be called a failure is they really thought this was going to be the birth of a franchise. Where you'd have multiple films like the Batman Burton franchise, and they even made and f- completed an SNES a yeah, Super gonna Nintendo say, game and pulled it because it wasn't worth that marketing. That is that's like,
1: the signal for me is there is all this merch that they they it, it did
2: they burned they just got
1: rid of yeah yeah which there was is a there was a
0: clothing line for children men and women they yeah. were coming out with that and they just let it go which you know figures, we were talking. Yeah.
2: Yeah we were talking a lot about Batman, but I think probably we need to also bring in 1990s Dick yes. Tracy, which, which is maybe is even more is similar in some ways where Dick Tracy made money. I mean, it's hard to revisit Dick Tracy because that should be such... A better film and there's some (laughs) incredible performances but in terms of the merchandising i mean like i remember having my brother Mm -hmm. having dick tracy sheets and even though it didn't get highly reviewed it did well at the box office and i think there was a dick tracy phone that maybe my friend had in her basement you
1: could talk yeah so that's where the shadow was going vertical integration of dick tracy i think did well enough that part of me assumes the reason there wasn't a sequel was probably just Beatty fighting you know because they probably would have been interested in something
0: Probably.
2: But, you know, and that's a film that's helmed by Warren Beatty, like, top, you know, Hollywood legend, really amazing director of Heaven Can Wait, which we talked about on the podcast. The Shadow's different, you know, but I can see where they were, their eyes were on Dick Tracy and a bit of Batman, and maybe that's the wrong approach to yeah. take i would argue oh, yeah well we'll
0: get it we'll get into all this and let's just say that the reason why and very cut and dry the reason why this did not make the multitudes of millions that it should have was it was released opposite the lion king and it just you know decimated it for obvious reasons because if you're taking your young person to something you're gonna take them to uh you're gonna take them to the lion king and this is just like a little too adult but still a little too young like it sits in like a weird demographic mm-hmm. um but before we go anywhere else alicia give us a little bit of a plot summary on this one
2: um, yeah. So, I mean, The Shadow, you know, for those, w- those of you not familiar with it, it's not actually a comic book adaptation in the way that, um, well, Dick Tracy's more newspaper, um, or in the way that Batman is. It really originates um, the source material in 1930 on the radio, which is why we're talking about it in this episode dedicated to radio uh, radio adaptations. So it's the creation of Walter B. Gibson, and uh, it appears in a radio show called The Detective Story Hour in 1930. This character is like a side character called the Shadow and he can kind of through mind control make the appearance of objects as well as himself appear different uh for people if that makes sense cloud so he can kind minds. of cloud cloud people's minds so that means and this is important to the film that when Alec Baldwin who is Lamont Cranston uh so Lamont Cranston's kind of the Bruce Wayne character in this film uh where Batman is the Shadow uh, Lamont Cranston is Alec Baldwin and looks like Alec Baldwin. When he's the shadow, he's in prosthetics and looks like an entirely different person. I, I was gonna say, I think he looks up. like
1: an entirely different Baldwin. He looks like one of his brothers. <laughs>
2: yeah, so basically they put Billy yeah. Baldwin prosthetics yeah. on yeah. Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> this like rounder mm. nose and this slantier kind of forehead. But I and, like that they bothered um, to do that because they could have yeah. just wrapped yeah. him it's in a, a big idea. scarf and a big hat, I agree. right? But, and let's let's like let's put a pin in that and maybe that can be our redemptive. Sure. <laughs> but um So this character appears on the radio and then it then becomes, it doesn't uh, appear on radio again in a dedicated way until like the late 30s, like 1937, it's actually The Shadow becomes one of the top selling um, serialized pulp magazine stories uh, and later its own novels throughout the 1930s. So like Radio Land Murders, which takes place in 1939, this is very much a 30s and early 40s narrative. Um, incredibly popular. You know, this this is really what a lot of people have said. Bob Kane was inspired mm-hmm. for Batman. Uh, he was inspired by the shadow. And there's a lot of commonality here. And I would argue when watching the production design of this film, there's a lot of Gotham City, Ala Burton uh eighty nine and ninety oh, two.
1: Yes. Bur- which I Real think is very Burton actually effective. From the uh,
2: It's effective. Yeah. Alicia,
0: but... I feel like one of the things you would appreciate most about this is that like the design of it is gorgeous. Like
2: the city looks amazing. Oh. Stunning. And I hate that I watched this in, you know, like not like on my computer, essentially. Um, I I know broken record. I would if someone played this theatrically in a proper, you know, Mm -hmm. digital version or God forbid, a 35 millimeter print, I'd be there in a heartbeat just for the gorgeous set pieces. This is a film that opens in Tibet. Um, so it's very very Batman Begins Mm -hmm. I gotta say Christopher Nolan looking at this and looking at the Frank uh, Miller you know Batman Begins graphic novels there's a lot here with the Ra's al Ghul character in this case it's played by John Lone who is um, an actor I want to talk a bit about because he is I'm endlessly fascinated by John Lone and he is somewhat of a missing person right now Um, but he is the embodiment of Genghis Khan um, who also has these skills, the same as The Shadow. The Shadow is a, someone who was a World War One soldier who was traumatized by the war and then decides to become a, a drug Evil, kingpin yeah. warlord. Which I do kind yeah, of like that the
0: white dude is the one coming in and fucking it up for all mm-hmm. the Asian people. Yeah. And I'm like, it thank you. Yeah, a metaphor it. It's opium and heroin, and they keep that in the movie, which mm-hmm. I really like.
2: And then this master who can, you know, kind of um, master this uh, mind control, takes him in, teaches him, you know, kind of the crime fighter ways and, and, and all of the yeah. things. And he then goes back to New York and, uh, you know, becomes a crime fighter a la Batman. Um, meanwhile, John Lone, uh, who's playing Genghis Khan, has she won Khan. trained he's, yeah. he's, uh, he's,
0: he's the person. He's the only living descendant of Genghis Khan, which with modern DNA we know is not a thing.
2: Is- ridiculous yeah. 13 like it was at 8% of uh, the planet a, is related to yeah. great,
1: Genghis we, I can't remember the documentary but there's a great documentary about the descendants of Genghis Khan and there's a French village which looks like a fairly normal French village but they all have if you don't know famously the descendants of Genghis Khan many of them have this birthmark on their tailbone and almost everyone in this French village has it and the French village has <gasps> an old French tradition quote-unquote of when a body is buried only two people who they don't know who they are secretly bury it somewhere and that's actually a, a mongol tradition so you wouldn't have the bodies yeah that's,
2: that's wild. i mean that that's a whole podcast yeah exactly but uh, wow yeah.
1: wow
2: anyway this guy's the only which is we know is an accurate uh descendant and yeah it you know there's set pieces in the museum we've got um tim curry as this sort of assistant to uh ian mckellen mm. who's in this film who are developing Let's say, for better or worse, uh, like a nuclear bomb. They're developing MacGuffins. (laughs) Yes, yeah, a bomb, which, you know, John Lone's character is then going to use to blow up the earth or something (sighs) like that. Um, And then you have Margot Lane, who's a rumored either cousin or sister of uh, Mm -hmm. Lois Lane from Superman, who is the love interest here, played by Penelope Ann Miller, I know you're gonna defend her to the death, but for me she's the weakest. I have no, of I'm not film. defending this one to the death. That's actually, okay. I think, the biggest problem with this film. Costume's is, beautiful. And, yeah, hair's she beautiful. is an incredibly gorgeous clothes
0: rack, and that's the problem. Yeah. She does she does get one of the best lines or part get to be part of one of the best jokes in the uh in the whole thing, which is Oh god, I dreamed. So did I. What did you dream? I was lying naked on the beach in the South Seas,
2: and the tide was coming up sun was beating down my skin was hot and cool at the same time what was yours i dreamed i tore all
1: the skin off my face and was somebody else underneath
2: you have problems i'm aware of that which you see i have to yeah. say you see that dream yeah. so you see i think this is the most one of the most effective scenes is alec baldwin In his disguise. Well, no, he's Alec Baldwin as Lamont Cranston. And he starts ripping off the Lamont Cranston skin to reveal the scary shadow Mm. and then turn into the John Lone character. It's like, I I was all for
1: it. So we'll go into it probably a bit more. But the the David Kepp script, which is he's kind of the guy who broke this, uh, what he chooses to do and what makes, to me, as like a superhero fan, what makes this movie interesting is he chooses to make it that essentially the master taught... Uh, Lamont Cranston to use his evil side which was like the weird you know long fingernailed heroin dealer to to essentially <laughs> own it into the shadow to use evil to fight crime but Lamont Cranston yeah. is constantly feeling that he has this evil inside of him that he's struggling against and then the cool thing that they do which John Lone is so good at selling is Siwan Khan doesn't come to town to fight the shadow he is impressed by the shadow and essentially says like You aren't the good guy, you're evil come with me and be mm-hmm. evil. Like, his whole thing is essentially constantly taunting Lamont Cranston. He's like, I want the shadow. I want that yeah. guy to be on my side.
2: There's some queerness oh, in Oh, absolutely. They yeah, love it, to have dinner with each other. I love they it. They don't,
1: they rarely, like, punch each other. <laughs> they love to just uh, look and talk to each other and ask each other about their fancy suits.
0: <laughs> Which is, no, but that, okay, so yeah. the brother, Brooks Brothers joke is also one of my favorite jokes, and mm. it was also, the radio show was originally sponsored by Brooks Brothers. So that's, like, how yeah. you do the yeah. nod yeah. before. Without making it too much, because it's a good joke, we'll still nod, right?
2: Lovely tie, by the way. May I ask where you acquire it? Brooks Brothers. Is that Midtown?
0: Forty fifth and Madison.
2: You are a barbarian.
1: Thank you. We both are
2: they work in some really great radio sponsorship stuff with like all the billboards that are Mm. in the city with this one that's smoking a cigarette which was of course the camel cigarette billboards in new york all smoked like actual had smoke coming out of them that Um, that that was such a
1: wonderful layered joke yeah because they're making fun of camels by calling it a llama but then, of course, he yeah. goes to Tibet and is taught by a monk. So I'd climb a mountain for a llama is also like a fun Very funny. meta joke. Oh, man, <laughs> I love it.
2: I will also say it could be. It could be a meta joke towards Howard the Duck. Oh, my God. Which also <laughs> in 1986. Stop it. No, Let me talk. Oh, Stop it. I don't it. believe it. <laughs> in this, you're the one who told me this, Cam, okay. so you better believe it. In 1986, the advertising campaign for Low Howard term. the Duck in Los Angeles had Howard on billboards with a real cigar smoking. Oh. You tell me that in 1994, that's not a reference <laughs> to Howard the Duck.
1: I think it's the last smoking uh, billboard I heard of, to be fair.
2: Yeah, it was banned for yeah. obvious reasons. Uh, fire. Bring uh, back smoking like,
0: billboards is what uh, I will say. Well, I want to bring us back to John Lone. And uh, honestly, this movie also has some really great AAPI uh, representation in it. Because yes, the bad guy is Asian. And you do have a white guy versus, you know, a bad guy Asian person. But they make sure to balance that out. As you have uh, Sab Shimono is playing a doctor like yeah. a, a nuclear mm-hmm. physicist who helps them out as well. Um, so you uh, you get different people in different uh, different roles that you wouldn't necessarily see in a movie, especially at this time. Um, and the other thing I love about Shiwan Khan is he is like super sexy and super suave and like on the same mm-hmm. level as Lamont Cranston matching him beat for beat for beat until the very end. Um, and you, again,
2: you don't get to see that in these mm-hmm. kinds of villains, especially when it's portrayed by people of color.
1: Yeah. I
2: mean, I think that's a carryover of John Lone being the sexiest man alive in every <laughs> He's film he appeared in prior to this um and the very few films he did after because he quits acting in a mm-hmm. big way but you know if i think of a film you know the film that's a year before this in 1993 is david cronenberg's m butterfly mm-hmm. which stars uh which John certainly Logue. got him
1: the role you think right
2: i, I would yeah. think so but i could i also wonder about year. Your, yeah oh, you're, you're, right. The dragon, my, you're right you're right actually Chino. year of the
1: dragon probably did I'm that's it up. Great. Yeah. That's is that the right? But yeah, that's 80s. So you're is he's it? in it. Yeah. Well.
2: I mean, I know he's in it, is it. 80s? 85. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Saw that in 70 millimeter and mm. holy moly. But um, yeah, so there's, you know, and he's in one of the Beverly Hills cops. Yeah. He. Um, Iceman was probably the film that made him a star. He's kind of forgotten today and he shouldn't be, he gives up acting. Um, I do think he did. I remember seeing maybe a few years ago, he did do something on television. So he sure. might be back in the, in the saddle, both the saddle. Cause he also lives on a horse ranch and yeah. the, um, you know, the metaphorical. But yeah. <laughs> I want to
1: go back a bit to the, like the Asian American representation that you talk about, because it is this weird boom. We talked a bit about the kind of boom and bust of, uh, Asian representation or a uh, black representation in the early nineties. And I think Asian representation had a very similar boom and bust. And you see a lot yeah. of those great actors represented here, including a quick James Hong cameo. But, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: Yes. Very yeah. quick. Yeah. Blink and your yeah. well, like, I
1: mean, he gets murdered to his credit. But, uh, but it's a great death. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very memorable. Death. And he yeah. gets a great speech. But yeah, there's this interesting thing where and you it you know it gets deep into like representation politics, where like is it a Representation at any cost. But I definitely sat down to this wondering, like, I remember it's like a con bad guy, and obviously it's all based on Yellow Peril stuff. So is it going to be dicey? But like you say, the fact that there's Asian American characters is there, like, that's what nowadays we'd be like, oh, that is a good balance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the same coming up of course there was kind of the bad stuff but at the same time that was representations people like short round uh people like Mm -hmm. long duck dong data in the goonies those characters it's interesting that in the late 90s they just are not asian characters so you start to wonder like were those characters better than nothing but actually around now is when you have a great boom of positive uh, asian representation stuff like the joy lock club mm. uh stuff like True. you know the the turtles go back in time to, to be with asian characters basically there are so many asian actors at the time becoming famous uh and it's kind of interesting that it's a fascinating like time and it kind of goes away and 1984 is also actually i believe the debut of all american girl the margaret cho sitcom which was mm, at the so time good. the first ever all asian cast sitcom ever and then i yeah. believe it was the only one ever until fresh off the boat which also shows you that weird dip oh, again crazy. and i this one i have no explanation for uh, why that representation really went away and i think john Lone's is a perfect example of that where it's like here he is absolutely holding his own as the full star of a movie and he's a guy you know he comes from the peking opera so he probably has crazy skills that are not even on display
2: specifically the shanghai opera because i got confused i know i know that that's very minutia, uh, yeah. but uh, he was an orphan that was adopted. His Jesus name Lone Christ. is because he was adopted make as an orphan Can we make a movie about this? Man? I was just going to say, can someone <laughs> so listening get it? Like, find him, make a documentary, or write like can he, he makes do a documentaries and... too.
1: It's worth saying he, he's a documentarian. Oh he has a couple under his belt. I think he did a couple. I American will say Masters too, for
2: episodes. for ninety four coming back to a year in film like Double Happiness yeah. on the mm-hmm. Canadian side, you have one of the most important depictions of Asian Canadians from an. Asian Canadian director starring Sandra Oh, it launched her career is 1984. And luckily Sandra Oh, well, it takes a little while till she gets that bean uh, yeah. a casting call but like it would take her a little yeah, while yeah. too to, before she got the role she and deserved. i mean it's
1: interesting with this era of media you do see a lot of people trying to go back to it and actually a lot of famous asian actors there's quite often films set up trying to pick apart find a modern way to represent characters like fu manchu yeah. and i i know mm-hmm. um oh my god
2: dragon ladies yes,
1: absolutely I, and uh, a lot of asian actors often have the writes to charlie chan and are trying to Mm -hmm. because there were these popular asian characters throughout the history of cinema and novels but they were based on bad stereotypes and and, well and
2: and looking at the 30s specifically if you want to look at the era where the shadow was one of the most popular icons, you know, globally, really, um, someone like Anna Mae Wong, Mm -hmm. who was a very important actress beginning in the silent era when she was incredibly young, but then transitions uh, very successfully in the 1930s and again into television in the 50s before her life. She died um, quite young, but she had her own TV show in the 50s, which everyone forgets you know she was the original kind of dragon lady who one had never set foot in China until like her 30s when she meet, went to meet her father for the first time like but all of her biography whenever you read about Anne May Wong she was you know born in Peking and like came you know came to San Francisco as a teenager and it's, it was all untrue and she is someone that i today in 2021 am seeing so many people now aware of anime wong i believe there's a biopic Mm. in the order there's been three biographies written on her in the last five years she's no longer this person whose name you could only say at archival film festivals to get acknowledgement she's now um like a fully fleshed out person and i think looking back at the 30s like that orientalism that was so incredibly present and that eroticization very much is both Charlie Shan but also yeah, Anime yeah. Wong in terms of fetishizing fetishizing it sexually.
1: Yeah. Oh sure.
2: Well, I mean, this is this is the era where a film, a film adaptation of a very famous book, The Good Earth, you know, Anime Wong, wants the role, which is obviously of a Chinese woman, and it goes to German Louise Rainier mm-hmm. in Yellow Face, sure. who wins an Academy yeah, Award Jesus for it. Christ. So, like,
1: and I mean, when you, that's sort
2: of the era When you about. look
1: at uh, Siwon Khan and all the great Asian villains, I think you can also look at, like, Sesue Hayakawa, who was a, a oh sex symbol, but could Thank only you. be... The villain because they would not have you know you couldn't really have an interracial couple and they wouldn't really bother to have uh an asian lead woman that often so he he was mostly pigeonholed as a villain
2: his wife did produce films where they were able to star as a couple um like the dragon dragon painter would be a good example um Oh, yeah. Thanks for bringing up. Stacey Hayakawa is a, a name that's come out of my mouth <laughs> Yeah, in I the mean, last 20 years. Like
1: the, you know, he's, he's up there with Valentino as like the sexiest silent film Oh, guy. and
2: was he ever. If anyone wants to just go on YouTube, 1915's The Cheat, uh, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, starring Stacey Hayakawa complicated film for sure
1: that's the thing my
2: god though my and i would
1: say that the shadow is complicated as much as we can praise it it's still a little complicated because again it's a it's an asian man menacing a white woman at certain points it's uh it's it's not free of it but it's kind of interesting when you see this and you think about like for instance 10 ish years later marvel was absolutely until another 10 years afraid to touch a lot of their asian villains they turned the mandarin into Mm -hmm. another racist stereotype which was a islamic uh terrorist organization in iron man first the 10 rings and then they made it this kind of goofy caricature with ben kingsley uh but now they're finally in uh uh Shang Chi, they're gonna have a guy playing the character again who's gonna be Asian, but it's because they had to get an Asian director and Asian writer because they're you know or you know
2: casting Tilda Swinton as an
1: Asian character <laughs> yes. <director. I> mean, <laughs> the In- not they too long they ago they have, and they have too. now
2: apologized for it, being yes. like bad idea, yeah. Yeah. bad idea. Which yeah. is Doctor Strange, yeah, yes. Doctor see Strange that one, yeah. 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 So yeah.
1: there's still again, it's like this weird thing where you don't want representation we're we're past representation by any means you know but yeah. what are you losing when you are so cuz it wasn't even a time where they were afraid of being canceled it was the late 90s yeah. so it was just mm-hmm. them being like too lazy to <laughs> try too lazy too racist. And too racist. Yeah, true, I mean. true uh yeah so it's like kind of a fascinating thing to watch this movie like you say becky that it, i think threads the needle wonderfully because i was sitting down uh, very uh worried that it was going to be a cringe thing uh it's and not. that aspect is handled so well
2: yeah I, I think we are recommending this yeah. film. Yes! I think I want I it. it. I, I want it. it to be more. I, so I get frustrated when I see so much potential yeah. in something and it squanders it. And I think, this, whereas Radioland had a, such a strong third act, to me, this third act is. Pathetic.
1: yes yeah. you know, like a giant ball bomb rolling around yeah <laughs> the stuff
2: I
0: do want to point Stupid. people towards which I think totally redeems this is number one some of the action set pieces so that giant thing in the water dome that Tim Tim Curry sets <laughs> oh, off sure. that scene is amazing yeah. and if Margot Lane gets that great little joke as she he like washes out on top of her and it's like you called me like that's really yeah. funny yeah
1: you know what I also think that there's missing to me jokes like light-hearted you know Batman has the Joker in it but there's like a mm-hmm. little more when the banter is lighthearted between Margot and the shadow. I enjoy that. I get that they're totally. going for a darker mm-hmm. thing. And the other thing to remember is this was before superhero movies were allowed to be camp. And the kind of fascinating thing, of course, is
2: That's a good David Kep
1: goes on to essentially bust open the doors of that with Sam Raimi and Spider-Man, uh, which he also mm-hmm. wrote.
0: Sam Raimi actually got the rights for this, so he was supposed to make the next one is what was going to happen. Oh, he was going to okay. revitalize this character. Now, from what I can tell, the rights are lost right now. No oh, one, which is why yeah, I haven't yeah, I seen, one. See no one actually knows who it belongs to.
2: And it's not that it's public domain. It's that there is, I believe, a, a like a contentious lawsuit. lawsuit. Sure. Oh Well, all lawsuits yeah. are contentious, but you know what I mean. Like, they've been arguing for 20 yeah. years, it's a snap 25 years. Now, I supposedly, mean, this... there's different rights, though, for the radio versus the pulp. Yes. So there's... You know, and that's the problem, because this film is part radio. Like, yeah. it's taking, you know, the tone of the radio show and even, like, some of the dialogue, but it's really the visuals of the mm-hmm. pulp magazine. So, like, I don't know where you draw the line with this, actually. And yeah.
1: a lot of his powers are, like, a mishmash of... Just what, what David Cap liked from one source or the other. But yeah, I, and I think it's kind of fascinating because I think you can see what, for instance, Sam Raimi apparently took a swing at it in the 80s too and nobody wanted him. And then he just went on and made Dark Man, which is essentially the shadow. It's There's the a lot thing. of stuff yeah. that is essentially the shadow that you're but like, it's oh, it's okay. good. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of fascinating and and i mean it's interesting that it was also i'm i really want to know it's produced by this guy uh martin martin bregman who is really al pacino's producer and i was like
2: mm. he clicked oh, you seriously he's really al pacino <laughs> no, <but> i mean <laughs> I he, like, he produced all the
1: great al pacino movies and that's partially why penelope ann miller is here because she was in uh, carlito's way it's pretty much a lot of the cast oh, and crew of yeah. carlito's way interestingly uh,
2: but carlito's way is 95 right or is it 93 uh,
1: before yeah I believe it's right okay. before. Yeah, it's definitely um, before. Yeah, I think it's but straight, anyway, yeah, so it, it's kind of fascinating in that regard. But I am also fascinated to know if it was the shadow he ever pictured Al Pacino as the shadow. They claim that every actor they got is exactly who they wanted first first shot, but, <laughs> yeah.
0: you know. Can we just talk about, how, just quickly, because we got to wrap up, Tim Curry is the greatest in this and has one hell of a scene-stealing, chewing, like, he is at his screwball best, which you get to see in Clue and in Oscar, weirdly, mm-hmm. that he's capable of. Like, the 90s seem to be, we need to... Scene stealer. Let's call Tim Curry.
2: We'll see. I wanted more of him. I don't agree. Mm. I felt he was so underutilized because he's um, so great. But that and, that death scene is so good. You know, the death yeah, scene's sure. good. Uh,
1: what I will say is, I think the person who is phoning it in. Sir Ian yeah. McKellen. Yeah. Oh yeah. He, the worst. We know. The, how, you want to
2: watch the worst McKellen yeah. performance? It's probably. He can have the
1: fun. He can do stuff. He's just not trying. He's a zombie for yeah, most of really it. Like he's really literally. A and... Yeah. He
0: said he was struggling with the accent. He's like, they hired me to play an American, and I don't. He do should have just
1: been a British guy. So... But yeah, it's very weird because we know, you know, we, uh, he would go on to play wizards and yeah. Magneto, and we know he can <laughs> chew scenery with the best of yeah. them, and he's just, and he's playing a daffy character, but having zero fun with it. Yeah,
0: I do want to point. <laughs> Yeah. too though because i talked about wanting to talk about the screwball moment that i think in this works so well it's john lone and tim curry which now it makes sense that he's an opera performer because he gets the timing is mm. it's when tim curry is talking about We saw himself a
1: king in my kingdom king did i say king maybe not the best choice of words no it wasn't because actually i was thinking prince tops not even necessarily a uh, duke baron <laughs> Your choice, of course,
0: your choice. The neighbor, like, And he watches mm, him mm. as John Lone kind of pulls his face around. And as he says each line, the face is in a different position, but it's it's so beautifully choreographed. It's like that screwball. That's the timing. It's
2: very, coming back to how we described, you know, certain films, it's very text Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, in, in motion.
0: I have to end it there. I'm sorry. We're over time because we got <laughs> excited. But, you know, good movies. That's how this works. I'm just saying. Go watch the shadow. Bring it back. Give me some more shadow. We'll make it so that Margot <laughs> Lane is an actual partner because that's what it's like in the books and the and the radio. And that's that's what you I would need. love a remake of. Oh, this. So good. There's I'd so much it. potential. Oh my god. Okay. That having been said, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks,
2: Becky. One thing we forgot to mention about Radioland Murders is it features the actor Joey Lawrence yes, from Blossom true. as Frank Sinatra. Not he bad. was think uh, about yeah, that for a, a second. Crooner. He well he had a music career as well. I remember my cousin had his album. Not as a crooner. <laughs> I remember the tape. I had it. It was not crooning nineteen thirty nine esque music, but it is so miscast. Yeah, the hair it the has hair to be slicks. seen. He's to be got relieved. the hair, it
0: slicks back. I will I will not defend him, I'm sorry. I Cam uh, Maelin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh,
1: yeah, no problem. I I don't know there's so much to talk about with these movies so it was I know good but I don't know watch we at your own peril
0: didn't even cover the Russell director Mulcahy. Russell yeah. Mulcahy wow. who is directed over watch Razorback over- I Oops. will say
1: watch Razorback yeah that's, Razorback that's, that's his one of his greatest films
0: yeah and Australian exploitation
2: yeah. filmmaker or as yeah.
0: we mentioned he directed the music video for a video killed the radio star sure. which opened MTV as well as 400 400 other music videos you will definitely recognize so yeah go and he does a bunch of Teen Wolf now good for him yeah
1: and I think he was really a journeyman. Why we didn't talk yeah. about him is he was just being a journeyman director because yeah. that's yeah, a, and that's, that's I think part of why it doesn't pop is is he, he there's none of his fingerprints on it particularly.
0: Yeah. yeah, someone is yelling at us right now about Highlander and Highlander Two, but that's yeah. fine. Oh well, mean, yeah, I mean, not yeah, Highlander
1: Two. That's a piece of. <laughs>
0: Okay, and you can join us again next week where we're going to look at two movies that involve Universal Monsters not produced by Universal. We're also going to talk about Ken Brana's very gelatined up abs. And we're also going to be joined by Faculty of Horror podcast and executive editor of Room Morgue. Andrea Subasati is going to be joining us. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at HollywoodSuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at HollywoodSuite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Mays. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.